This morning we are in Acts chapter 15. I spent a lot of my life studying the Bible because uh, I, I believe it's true. And one of the things that I love about the Word of God is that I think it holds up. It holds up to scrutiny. You can ask it difficult questions, uh, and, and it can provide the answers to that because God's Word is, is true and it's reliable. And uh, there are lots of different ideas about the Bible, lots of different ideas about God, lots of different theological uh, thoughts that exist out there. And, and uh, uh, the Bible makes it clear that there are going to be people that have lots of different theological opinions and uh, encourages us to hold fast to the truth that we find in the Word of God. And, and so I've spent so much of my life studying it and, and trying to better understand it uh, because I believe that it's true and that it's reliable and that it's our guide for how to live and, uh, and, and trying my best to help other people understand it, uh, also. Uh, a few weeks ago, I had, uh, this nice lady with a couple of young kids come up to my door wanting to talk about God, which was awesome. Uh, she happened to be a Jehovah's Witness, but she was coming to me to talk, like right up to my door to talk about God. Like, how awesome is that? And a lot of times, I'm, you know, if I'm busy or something's going on, I'll, I'll just say no thanks and send them on their way. But I had some free time this day. <laughs> so I thought, all right, I mean, if you want to talk about God, that's the least I could do is give you a few minutes. So um, she had this like rehearsed opening line about the importance of the name of God, because you've heard Jehovah's Witness, the name Jehovah's important. Uh, and then and then she had her little daughter, like maybe eight years old, read a passage from uh, from the Old Testament that had uh, the name Jehovah in it. S- super adorable, very, very cute, uh, and did a good job. And I said, oh, that's awesome. That's great. I said, okay, can I, can I read you guys a verse now? And they're like, um, all right. <laughs> that might have been the first time that day that anybody's asked that question. So I ran in the house and, and grabbed my Bible uh, and brought it out and said, okay, I want to read you John 1.1. And the little girl like had her Bible opened up to John 1.1, so it was right there. So all right, let me, let me read it. Uh, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Then I asked, okay, who's that talking about? Who is the Word? And the mom said, Jesus. I said, yes, absolutely. That is absolutely. So this passage is talking about, so this passage here that talks about the word, it's talking about Jesus uh, was in the beginning. Jesus was with God. Jesus was God. Jesus is the creator of everything. Nothing has been created except through Jesus because he is God. And I said here, there's a difference though. Like in my Bible, there's uh, a letter that uh, is different than y- your Bible. And can you pick out what that letter is? In in their Bible, they add just one letter. It's just a small little, like it's just one little letter. Uh, it's the letter A. But it changes things a ton, right? Uh, in their Bible, it says the word was a God. Not not God, not just God, not not the God, but Something less, something less than God, a kind of God, a type of God, a lesser creation of God, not, not totally, fully God. God-like, but not 
eternal or co-equal with the Father. Uh, uh, and, and so I explained to her what I believe is that uh, that, that addition of an A is it's wrong. Like it's that's not that doesn't belong in that passage. That that it doesn't really fit with the rest of the passage too. That talks about Jesus existing since the beginning and creating everything that was created. And clearly, it's talking about Jesus as fully God. And, uh, and I th- I think uh, I think this passage here and others uh, re- reaffirm that truth. Um, and she her answer was well. Yeah, but your Bible, they took the name Jehovah out. If they took the name Jehovah out, like what else might they have changed? Maybe they took that little letter A out. I said, all right. Uh, okay. Um, let's, I think we can, we can figure that out. Let's take a look at the Greek and see what it says. Uh, so like I have a Greek version on my phone and I've spent six years studying Greek. So I'll read you the Greek, uh, and we'll see if the A is in there. Um, she didn't, Take me up on that offer. Uh, but okay. Uh, then, then she said, well, well, the whole idea of the Trinity, the word Trinity is not found anywhere in the Bible. Like, okay, well, that's, tr- that's true. Uh, the word Trinity is just a theological concept that theologians have come up with to like quickly and easily explain the concept of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that is all over the New Testament, clearly seen in Scripture in a bunch of different places. The baptism of Jesus, uh, we, we see it all throughout Paul's writing. We see it from Jesus himself with the Great Commission. Not, that concept is, is all over the place. Uh, I don't, I don't think she fully agreed with me there either. Uh, I told her, what we believe about Jesus is vitally important to our eternity. What we say, who we say Jesus is, is absolutely important. It's crucial. Jesus made it clear that who we say he is, is absolutely vital to our eternity, to our salvation. This is important. Like this is a this is a big deal. Um, I believe that Jesus is fully and completely God, and you don't. And one of us is wrong. <laughs> one of us is really, truly dishonoring the name of God. And, and she said, well, I'm, I don't think I'm dishonoring Jesus. Uh, I said, I, I said, I, I tell you what, at this point, I, listen, I'm going to pray for you, uh, for God's clarity and insight for you. Keep studying, keep studying the word of God. Uh, d- don't necessarily believe everything that other people are telling you about it, but you go study the word of God for yourself because I believe that it can hold up to scrutiny. You go study it and I'm going to pray for you and you pray for me and, she went on her way uh, down the street. Our theological difference that day was primarily centered around Jesus. Because there's a huge difference between believing that Jesus is God and believing something less. Believing that He's some lesser creation. Huge difference. And I think part of the confusion, especially with with her and in that particular uh, cult of Christianity, 
is a confusion about how Jesus as a human, fully human, could also be fully God. How is that even possible? Who is he praying to? And how does he, that seems kind of uh, schizophrenic that he's like divided in that way. How, how for us to wrap our minds around that concept of the Trinity isn't an easy thing. I'll, I'll, I'll grant that. But, the fact of the Trinity is clearly taught in Scripture as Jesus Himself says, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus was super clear about His identity. And so, because of this, this confusion that exists about certain parts of theology that are difficult for us as limited human beings to understand, what, what we want to do is try and pull God down to our level so He's more understandable. But listen, if you've got a God that you can fully, completely understand, then that's not a very good God, right? That's not a very big God. If, if He can be understood by our tiny little brains, He's probably too small. If Jesus is less than God, then our salvation is less than complete. We're less than fully saved. Atonement for our sins is less than total. Which means that we need to add something to it. We need to add our own efforts, our own works, our own righteousness. And that's why in every cult of Christianity, every single one, 100% of the time, it's it's a works-based system. There are things that you have to do in order to earn your salvation. And often, often theological differences of opinion or error, uh, it doesn't start out with this like full-blown rejection of God or with, or with Jesus or with who He is. A lot of times, again, especially with cults of Christianity, they start out with Christianity as a base. They start out with the truth. But over time, those areas of confusion and frustration or, or just evil people that want to twist it to use it for their own means uh, change the clear meaning of Scripture. And that, that confusion about the, the Godhead, confusion about, about the inerrancy of Scripture, confusion about all of these different areas, the relationship between faith and works, those confusions inevitably lead to heresy. And so it's important that our theological framework is consistent, that it's unified, not just so that our beliefs are right and orthodox, but so that our practice is right and orthodox. But what, what do we do when we face some kind of theological difference of opinion with someone? My, my guess is most of you in this room have been at a point in your life where you've had some type of theological difference of opinion. It happens every now and then, right? Where there have been somebody out there who thinks way different, believes way different than you do. How do we proceed forward when that happens? What do we do when someone knocks on our door and has a way different view of, of Jesus. What happens when someone in our own church has different ideas about God or the Bible? So here in Acts chapter 15, what we see is the church facing really its first big theological debate. 
Really, the, the first one that, that has the potential to cause all kinds of problems from this point forward. And, and this was a, this was a serious one. This was a, a big one here. I think in a lot of ways, this debate was inevitable, was going to happen, uh, but it's, it's super dangerous. This is a debate that had the potential of completely undermining the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And so the stakes are high. So let's take a look at the debate and talk a little bit about the process that they used to solve their difference of opinion. Starting in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judah, began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. We're bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as He also did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples, a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. All the people kept silent. They're listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were uh, relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simon Peter has has related how God first concerned Himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for His name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After these things, I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by My name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. James says, Therefore, it is My judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them 
that they abstained from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So so here's the essence of the disagreement in this section. Some people were saying that in order to be a good Christian, in in order to be saved, you had to first become a Jew. You had to go through all the Jewish rites of passage, do the things that God said you had to do in order to enter the Jewish covenant community, and then, and then keep the law. And if you did all those things, then you're good. Then you're saved. It's not that the Jewish believers didn't believe in Jesus. They did. They, they believed that Jesus came and that He died and that He was the Messiah and that was all great. But you still have to keep all these Jewish customs in order to really honor God. And and listen, I can understand their argument. If you try and put yourself in their shoes for thousands and thousands of years, God had said, listen, in in order to atone for your sins, in order to be right with me, here's all the things that you need to do. Now, kind of quickly, rather suddenly, all of those rules have changed gone out the window. It, it seemed extreme. It seemed sudden to these, these Jewish people that had lived their whole lives keeping all these rules. And, and I think maybe it, it even seemed like a little bit unfair to them. Like, wait a minute, hold on. Like, we've had to do all of these things in order to be good with God. But the Gentiles, they just to come in and, and believe in Jesus and that's it and they're, they're done. Like, that, nothing else. Like, no, keeping all the dietary laws. We had to have, like, different pots and pans, and it was a whole thing. They don't have to do that? Nope. Sorry. <laughs> like, all the sacrifices that we used to do and all the things we had to, like, with animals. and Nope. They don't have to do any of that. No, that's done. Uh, circumcision? Do they have, they have to at least do that. Come on. Everybody has to do that. No, they don't even have to do that. That's, that's not a thing anymore. Like, oh, man, that's, that's not fair. Uh. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Billy, he's not here, right? Okay, good. I can talk about him. Uh, Billy came home on a Thursday and was super excited because he got 100% on his spelling pretest. You take a, like a pretest on Thursday, and if you get 100%, then you don't have to take the actual test on, on Friday. And so it's, it's a big deal to get 100% on your test on Thursday, and he, and he was stoked. Friday, when I pick him up from school, he was kind of grumpy. Like he was, he was mad, like b- bummed out. I'm like, dude, what? What happened? And he explained to me that on Friday, uh, the rest of the class took the spelling test that he didn't have to take because he had already gotten 100%. The teacher decided that she was just going to give everybody 100% on their spelling that week. And he was mad about that (laughs) because like he worked to get that 100% and everybody else, like the one week I get 100, (laughs) they all get it. I'm like, wait a minute, hold on. Are you mad because the teacher decided to extend extra grace to everybody else in the class? That's messed up. I mean, come on. Can't you just be happy for your classmates who all did really well, including you? Like, doesn't seem like that's something you should be uh, uh, upset about. Uh, instead of rejoicing at the extra amount of grace that God had extended to the Gentiles, as well as to the Jews, as well as to them, 
these Jews were teaching that no, 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 you still have to do all the same work that we had to do. You still have to jump through the same hoops that we have to jump through and keep the same rules. They thought that the, that the grace of God uh, was through Jesus plus stuff, plus good works, plus something else, plus religious traditions, plus circumstances. That's, that's how you get saved. And some form of that error still exists. It's always existed. This theological problem hasn't gone away because I think that there's this sinful, selfish, prideful part of us as human beings uh, that that has this tendency to worm its way out in wanting to think that we're contributing to our own salvation. We want partial credit. Okay, I get it that God does stuff for us. That's wonderful. But I want some of the credit myself for the things that I'm doing. And so there's all these different messed up ideas about grace and what it does. Salvation salvation is by grace plus good works. That's the most common. Or uh, there are some that say, sure, salvation is by grace, like you're saved by grace, but then you got to do a bunch of stuff to keep it. But ah, listen, even the sanctification is by grace. Some say salvation is by grace, but you earn that grace by performing these sacraments, these means of earning grace. But that's a contradiction in terms. You can't earn something that's free. It's free. That's not how it works. Paul argues that salvation is not through works. The Gentiles don't need to become Jews. That that Jesus has completely and totally atoned for our sins. All the work has already been done by Him. An unlimited amount of grace has been poured out on us. So salvation is by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Jesus alone. This... This is a relatively new problem uh, for the early church here. For about the first five, ten years, the gospel is primarily going to Jewish people. It really isn't until Acts 10 when like Peter saves Cornelius and you have these Gentiles now that are becoming saved because of the missionary work of, of Paul and Barnabas. Now it becomes a problem. Some were actually telling these excited, eager, new Christians that unless they get circumcised, they can't go to heaven. Man, that is messed up. And I know you guys think you're good with God, but you're not. You're still going to hell. Unless you become like us, you're still going to hell. Oh. I, I think that 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 same way of thinking still plagues the church. That idea that unless you're like us, you're not really a Christian. Unless you look like us and think like us and sing like us, you're not really 
good with God. And it, it gets worse as this passage progresses, right? It starts off by the, with them saying, like, in verse 1, uh, you got to be circumcised to get saved. But then by verse 5, they're up in the ante. You have to be circumcised and keep the whole law of Moses. Oh, man, this is getting worse by the minute. And Paul and Barnabas, they, they sharply disputed their claim. They taught that the atoning work of Jesus was total and complete, and there was absolutely nothing else that you had to add to it. And there was a very like angry, stern debate over it. And the church was like, whoa, okay, here guys, we got to figure out how to solve this problem. Let's, let's see what we need to do to, to, to solve. So the, the first thing that they do to try and solve the problem is say, we need to go seek some godly counsel. We need to go talk this through. Go down to Jerusalem. Meet with the apostles who are there. You can both share your side of things. Let them think it out. Let, let the leaders like, like Peter and James process it through and, and then issue some sort of determination. Man, this is a big one. This is an important one. Enlisting the help of other godly leaders, seeking godly counsel is absolutely crucial. I have a, I have a, a friend of mine uh, who loves the Bible, loves God's Word, truly does, with a, like a passion. He loves reading it, he loves meditating on it, loves, loves studying it and picking it apart. Uh, his love for the Word of God is absolutely commendable. Uh, but... Sometimes he has a tendency to study the Word of God in a vacuum, which is dangerous. Uh, he reads it in his English translation, doesn't maybe fully trust the commentaries, doesn't fully want to do word studies, or at least not using different languages. He just reads it and does his best to try and understand what it says in, in his English version. And on and on several occasions, he's come to me with some amazing new discoveries that he's found and some new revelation that he's had, which is not a new revelation. It's just an old heresy uh, based off of like weird understanding of particular English words or it contradicts some other passage of Scripture or it just fails to take into consideration the historical background. His argument is that since the Bible is inerrant and, and trustworthy and true and complete, it's all you need. You should be able to just open it up and study it and, and you don't need anything else. It's sufficient. Uh, commentaries are written by fallible men. And, and my argument is, yes, while the Bible is absolutely sufficient, you and I aren't sufficient. We are limited in our knowledge and in what we know. That's why I spent all those years trying to learn more and studying and trying to understand the languages better and dig in deeper and understanding that even with all of that, I'm still insufficient in my knowledge. I have to lean on the wisdom of men who are way smarter than I am. That's why I study the commentaries and see what others have to say. That's, I think that's true for, for all of us. And I, I'll let you in on a little secret. Most of the Bible has already been studied, right? 
by really, really smart people. You can go out there and read about what they have, have understood, what, what God has taught them about the Word of God. You can go and, and read books by, by guys who have studied the culture of the early church way more than we'll ever know and, and can explain figures of speech and customs to us. It would be hugely foolish of us to not seek out the insights of those who have gone before us. So as you're wrestling through different uh, theological conundrums, make it a point to seek out wise, godly counsel. Come see me. I'm the house theologian here. Uh, find a good commentary that can help you process through different ideas. Uh, go, uh, go get a, a, a study Bible that will help you as you're reading scripture, uh, to answer questions. Uh, you can, you can use Google, but you're never gonna know what you're gonna find there. <laughs> There's few things that I, I love more than when somebody sends me an email asking a theological question. I love that. You're not gonna bother me. You're not gonna, Make me upset. I have plenty of time for that. So, so uh, Paul and Barnabas they head to Jerusalem. They hold this this formal council, this debate. The believers who are in the Pharisaical camp they get up and they plead their case, and there's lots of discussion around it. And then Peter gets up and says what he has to say. Peter simply reminds them of what God had already said and done. Any and all theological discussion has to go back to the Word of God. It has to be grounded there. It has to be centered around what God has to say. It's it's not going to be based primarily on our feelings. Our feelings don't dictate the truth. They change every couple of minutes. It's not going to be through personal opinions. That's not where we're going to ground our theological beliefs on. Those personal opinions are often bent, selfish. It's not going to be through consensus. It's not that we're all going to get together and say, here's what's true, because the crowd has a tendency to be wrong about what's true from time to time. No, but there has to be an unchanging source of truth, something that doesn't shift every couple of minutes. And the only thing that's unchanging is the Word of God. Acts fifteen seven. after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the Word of the Gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the necks of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We believe that they are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. Man, I love how Peter words that last part there. We believe that, that we're saved, us, us Jews are saved in the same way that those Gentiles got saved. Not that, not that those Gentiles are like us. No, no. We're like them. After this, Paul and Barnabas, they get up and share all about what God had done uh, through their ministry and their missions trip. Finally, James gets up to speak. James, the brother of Jesus, 
person who sits in a position of authority here on this council. And, and, and James is, is really Jewish. He's very, very Jewish. And I think that maybe some of these uh, pharisaical people thought that James was going to side in their favor, maybe. I, I don't know. But instead, what James does is go back to the Word of God. James builds off of what Peter said. Yeah, you hear what, what Peter had to say about how God had welcomed in the Gentiles? Yeah, that jives perfectly with this passage that we already knew about over in Amos. Let me read it to you again. And James shares from the Word of God. And his conclusion is that there's no reason to put any obstacles in the way of the Gentiles who are returning to God. I think most of our theological differences can be ironed out through uh, an in-depth and faithful study of the Word of God. If I had more time, I would have taken my Jehovah's Witness friend through some other passages of Scripture that talked about who Jesus was. What exactly is it that God has to say? That's what we want to know. The fancy seminary term for that is exegesis. We want to we want to see what we can pull out of Scripture, as opposed to eisegesis, which is reading our ideas into Scripture. We want to make sure we're doing the right one of those things. We're we're drawing from Scripture what's actually there. And I think with with true, honest, faithful study of the Word of God, God will reveal Himself to us. So they seek out wise counsel. They lean heavily on the Word of God. And then the other thing that Peter does exceedingly well here is he simplifies the Gospel. Simplifies it. We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Okay, how are we saved? Through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Okay, and what else? Nothing else. That's it. Through the grace of the Lord Jesus. That's it. Nothing. Paul Paul communicates the same thing over in Ephesians 2. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not the result of works, so that no one may boast. In, In his letter to the Galatians, Paul gives us like a more behind the scenes look at this sharp debate between him and the and the Pharisees that wanted to command circumcision and other things like Paul was mad at him like he you go read Galatians it's messed up like it's harsh Paul was mean like he he was tough like there's one place where Paul says I wish those people who are saying that you have to be circumcised to get saved would just go ahead and cut the whole thing off like, well, I don't think you can say that in the Bible Paul like that's that's, that's messed up, man. <laughs> he, he recognized that there was a lot at stake here. In Galatians 2.21, he says, I do not set aside the grace of God. We can't set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. That was what was at stake for Paul. We, we can't miss grace. We can't downplay grace. We can't change grace or add anything to grace because if there was some way for us to save ourselves by our good works then Christ died for nothing salvation that wants to add anything to the work of Jesus is totally dishonoring to him he did it all he gets all the credit we don't get to boast about anything 
We were dead in our sins when Christ made us alive. Does that mean that, that we can say that prayer of salvation and receive the grace of God and then go on sinning as much as we want? Well, Paul answers that question too, right, in Romans. And he says, no, no that's, not, that's not it either. It means that we are freed from slavery to sin. We're dead to sin. We're no longer under its bondage. We're now servants of, of Jesus, and He's our Lord, not sin anymore. Not because we have to do certain things in order to earn something. That's, that's not it. But because what salvation is, is freedom. It's not fire insurance. It's freedom. Freedom from all of those ways that our sin nature wants us to keep on sinning. Freedom from all those evil desires that used to control us, but they don't anymore. We need to be careful not to complicate the simple gospel message that we are saved by grace. It's interesting, in verse 12, it says that, that the people kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul. Maybe this is an aspect of solving theological differences that is really missing today. This is a, an aspect of solving any kind of disagreement among people that's really missing today. The being silent and listening. We don't do that. We don't do that very well. We talk over people. Uh, we might be silent, but that's because we're thinking of what we're going to say next in rebuttal. Uh, we're not really listening. Uh, we don't close our mouths and open our ears and our hearts we fight and we argue and we insult and we write things on Facebook and we don't listen. We don't, we don't think, okay, where is this person coming from? Where are they at? What are they thinking and feeling? I think that art of civil discourse is lost. Again, thanks, thanks social media for that. We've become cowards and critics and complaining and Grousing about politics and other people's ideals that we don't agree with. We don't listen well. Why, why are people holding so tightly to their views? And where did their view originate? And what are some aspects of my beliefs that I might be wrong about? And what can I learn? How can I best encourage and help? There's a whole book of the Bible that's chock full of, of advice, right? Proverbs. And a lot of places in that book it says we need to speak less and listen more. Maybe an updated version of those Proverbs would be encouraging us to listen more and post angry comments on social media less. Uh, all right, finally, if we're gonna, if we're gonna really solve these theological disagreements, it's going to require us to do something that we are even worse at than listening. I know, right? There's something that we're even worse at? Yeah. It requires us to submit. Oh, that's a dirty word, right? It just... <laughs> it requires us to, to submit to the Word of God. To submit to those that God has placed in a position of authority. To exercise humility and, and charity. Here in Acts 15, the Pharisaical believers, they needed to concede, submit to the teaching of James. 
And the Gentiles need to humbly submit to the ruling of the council. James says, you guys don't have to be saddled with all these Jews. That's not the case. Here's the, here's the, the advice we do want you to follow. Don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Stay away from blood and strangled things and fornication. All of those things having to do with idol worship. Don't do that. Just worship Jesus, not all these other false gods and idols and these weird ways that your culture does it. And the Gentiles readily agreed. They were excited. They were thrilled by the news. Encouraged by it. But the word, the word submit in our culture is, is not popular. Uh, we highly value things like rugged individualism, personal choice. So the whole idea of submitting to anyone or anything is heresy to us. And then we have that whole selfish pride thing that makes it even worse. But again, this concept of submitting is found all over the Bible. It's an act of humility and love and sacrifice. I think it's something that every single one of us needs to learn how to do if we're going to have a healthy relationship with other people. And it's an essential part of managing our conflicts and disagreements. We have to be willing to submit. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. If he's writing that in Hebrews, there's a good chance that it might not just be us that has an issue with submitting. It might be all people all the time. These, these steps to solving theological problems will work amazingly well in other areas of your life, not just with theological differences of opinion. With all kinds of other areas of conflict that you have in your life, applying these things, marital relationships, work conflict, whatever the situation is, seeking godly counsel, and what does God have to say about where I'm at right now, and listening, and Humbly submitting, all of these things will help you navigate life. Seek godly counsel. Stay close to the Word of God. Don't stray from that simple gospel message. Work on quietly listening to others and then be willing to humbly submit. God, I pray uh, that You would give us the ability to work through our differences of opinion in the same kind of way that we see here in Acts chapter 15. Thank you, God, for this guide that you have given us in your word. Thank you for this debate that, that they uh, entered into here in Acts chapter 15. And even though uh, that didn't settle it, that that debate still rages on today. Thank you that we can clearly see from the teaching that came out of this council that salvation is by grace. It's from you. It's free. It's not earned. It's not something that we can somehow work to gain. It's not something we have to work to keep. It's free. Thank You, God, for what You have given us through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. In His name we pray. Amen.